Welcome. Uh, Andy already did introductions, but I always feel like I should introduce myself again because there's 50% more of you every time I stand up here. I'm Tanner, and, and you guys know Andy, and uh, we're grateful, awful grateful to be able to be here tonight. I know a lot of you guys were here last week when Andy traced the thread of the Messiah through the Old Testament, but I also met some new people, uh, Daniel and others who I hadn't met and who I don't think were here last week. But as I was reflecting on the message last week and uh, Andy's preparation for it, I was reminded of uh, Hebrews 12 where he talks about, where he uses the word author. This is the author of our salvation, how God in his sovereignty chose to preserve the Messiah, the messianic line. As Andy mentioned, even in spite of sinful and wicked man, and even in spite of Satan's attempts uh, to try and mess up and, and ruin that line. It was a divinely orchestrated plan, wasn't it? God knew from the beginning. He would know because he was the author. 4,000 years the Old Testament, 400 years the intertestamental period, and that brings us up to the time of Jesus. And boom, Jesus hits the scene, and everything changes. 400 years of silence. I was reading a a commentary a while ago. It said, though the voice of God was silent, his sovereign hand was actively moving through the course of history. And then, boom, Messiah. And you'll remember, Andy got to the cross last week, and that's where we pick it up this week. The gospel preserved, the messianic line preserved in the Old Testament, and now, wham, New Testament. Pretty cool. And uh, I've been pretty excited in my preparation, prayer, and just my study of this topic. I don't think there's anything else I'd rather teach on tonight, maybe other than the character of God the Father or the character of God the Son. But both come into play as we examine the gospel in the New Testament tonight. The word gospel derives from old uh, Anglo-Saxon word Godspell that either means uh, news about God or good news, probably the latter, given the translation, given the way we see it. Good news. That's what we're going to talk about tonight is some good news, God's good news. And I hope that you walk out of here tonight. Many of you, I recognize and know that you've heard the gospel. And you probably heard it well, many of you, and some of you haven't heard it. But my prayer and our prayer has been that you would grow in appreciation for it. You'd grow in your knowledge of it, and as a result, that you would grow in worship and admiration and appreciation for our Heavenly Father. That's what a deepening of the gospel has done for me, and we've been praying that it would do it for you. Why wouldn't God understand it perfectly? He wrote it. But there's been mass, mass confusion about the gospel in our culture, and even in what we broadly call Christendom. So much confusion. Uh, so many missionaries sent out onto the field, and so many... So much confusion in different religions and different things in different places and so many perversions of the gospel. And it's been that way from the very beginning. I'm not even just talking 21st century. Remember what Paul wrote when he was writing at Jude and he said, I, I would like to write to you about our common faith, but I must write in defense of the faith. Or we think about Galatians where Paul says, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be a curse, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Even early on, the gospel is facing attacks and different uh, and poor theologies at the time, Gnosticism and different variations of it. From the very beginning, 
Satan was trying to pervert the gospel. And we see just mass confusion. Missionaries sent to the field and making thousands of false converts and uh, a lack of, of solid and, and good teaching in churches and just a, making it so much harder for when missionaries, real missionaries, go to the field and try and preach the gospel. Mass confusion about what the gospel really is. And instead of asking how richly we can know, love, and be sanctified in the gospel, we've instead asked, how little can we know the gospel and get by? What is the absolute, what's the bare minimum we can get by within the gospel? We're in an age, no doubt, where the gospel is under siege. And it has been for some time. The passage tonight, Paul preached. In the passage tonight, Paul preached to inform a crowd that had already heard the gospel, that was already fairly familiar with it. The passage we're going to talk about tonight is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd love it if you'd turn there with me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you'll notice as you turn there and as we read it, that Paul, under the inspiration, was a master teacher. And he took careful, very careful stock of his audience. He wasn't just writing a letter to anyone at any time. He was writing a specific to a specific audience that has implications for us today, but he had things in mind. And that's why Paul starts this passage in verse 1. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you've received and in which you stand. ESV says, now I remind you. Paul says, I'm going to remind you of the thing I've already preached to you, you've already believed and you already stand in. But I think before we go into that, it's necessary that we ourselves establish a base. Excuse me, a base. I haven't reminded you of anything yet. That's how I got saved. Someone reminded me of the gospel. I thought I already knew the gospel. I'd never heard the gospel like this. I'd figured that I'd been saved for years and years, and it was just another gospel presentation. Someone had sent me a link, and I'd listened to it. I thought I was about to be reminded. And God called me out of death and out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there's some of you here who know much about the gospel and no doubt preach it seldomly. And there's some who know very little about the gospel and preach it rampantly. To know the gospel, you must first understand its author. God wrote the gospel, and God starts the gospel, he begins the gospel, and he ends the gospel. There is no gospel without God. His gospel, or his character, is paramount to any right understanding of anything pertaining to what could be called Christianity. Before you, before me, before earth, before anything else, God. Just God. Three perfect, externally existent persons, different in substance, but the same in substance, supreme and perfectly joyful, in need of nothing and no one. Why did God create us? Was it because he was lonely and bored? Certainly not. The three persons of the Trinity existing in perfect harmony, perfect joy, perfect satisfaction, And God decides to create us. He does so without any compulsion from without. There was nothing to compel him from without because there wasn't anything he hadn't created yet. He does not do it out of loneliness or want. He does not do it out of necessity. But by his own pleasure did he create us. Adam and Eve walked in perfect favor and in peace with God. 
You know the story well, don't you? Didn't stay that way. Not only did they sin, but they stood as representatives of all mankind, of you and I. And when they fell, they fell under a curse. You're familiar with that curse in Genesis 3. Probably most of you are. And as such, we're under a curse today. It means we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by birth. Because of that curse, God put on mankind. But we've also become sinners about what we practice or what we do, how we perform in our lives. In fact, it's been said that our best works are our greatest sins. Our best works are our greatest sins. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that a self-righteous person, the best things he do, that he does, the things that he believes count most in his life in terms of getting him into the kingdom are his greatest sins. Because he doesn't understand that his righteousness is of nothing. It's of no works. We're sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, or what we do or perform. We're also sinners by choice, by what we choose. Our sin and rebellion, whether, whether passive or active, is at least in some ways volitional. We choose to disobey God, whether passively or actively. Now, verses could be multiplied to illustrate this point. You've heard them before. You're familiar with many of them. But many don't understand them. In fact, much of man doesn't understand this. And God has the authority to give us obligations in the form of laws, and that's just what he's done. These laws come, and Paul says that they come so that transgression may increase. What does it mean that law came so that transgression may increase? It means that God gave us law so we could see our sin. So in the gospel and in the gospel presentation, we see a need of the law to expose sin and wrongdoing. Brothers and sisters, you have broken God's commandments. And in doing so, you didn't just break a commandment that was set up in some heavenly court. God's law is a direct reflection of his character and who he is. So when we break God's law, or when you break God's law, you rebel against not just a law, but God himself. And all of this calls for one of the most, no, the most problematic things in all of history. A perfect God, just and holy, even as we've just sung about, in all of his ways, perfect. And he looks on us, desperate, rebellious, wicked, and troubled, lawbreakers, sinners, Nothing funny about that. Nothing fun about that. In Genesis 18, you're familiar with the saga where it was back and he says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Far be it from you to to punish the righteous with the wicked. Or far be it from God to spare the wicked with the righteous. God must do right. He always does right. That's the definition of righteous. He is right. Whatever he does is always right. And because he's just and perfect, he will by no means, Nahum says, let the guilty go unpunished. Why would he? How could he? Can you imagine a murderer gone to court? Someone who perhaps had taken someone close to you? and the judge was just to dismiss it at the drop of a hat, you'd be furious, wouldn't you? Why should it be any different with God? 
Jesus has said that all of us have become murderers. If you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've murdered him, at least on the inside. How could God look over that with pleasure? R.C. Sproul said it this way, all sin is cosmic treason. All sin is cosmic treason. God must punish. He must. But here's the good news. Motivated by love, both for himself and for mankind, God initiates a solution, a reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, all these things are from God. What does that mean? It means that the reconciliation is from God, that the restoration is God, that the faith, that the repentance, that the love, that all these things are from God. There is nothing good in us. Not that we should somehow look out to God, not that we somehow sought after God, but that he loved us enough that he sought after us. That he would think to come down. I was playing basketball the other day and talking with a a gentleman from France. And uh, through some broken language, we were trying to talk about God and the gospel and all these things. And he said, I hate the idea of man trembling underneath God and just looking down and in a, in distance and kind of the authority. It was more, he spoke even more in his actions than he did in his words. He spoke of a God shaking his fist at man. In broken language, I tried to explain to him how God had bridged that gap. I was not man reaching up to God, but God reaching down to man in the form of his son, God incarnate, God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Man doesn't decide to stop rebelling against God all of a sudden. God decides to withdraw his anger and place it onto his son. This comes in the form of his son. Jesus became became the scapegoat of Leviticus 16. The one who had done nothing wrong ever. No guilt lay on him. And yet, as you know, the sin was placed on the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 and he was sent outside the camp. Living a perfectly sinless life, Christ's lineage was preserved. He was born out of the sin line, as was mentioned last week. And that's where we pick up with Paul tonight. So now I've reminded you of what Paul reminded them of. And we can finally pick up in verse 2. So look back with me at the text. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, what you received and what you stand Reminding them of something they already knew. That's all Paul was doing. He says, I remind you of the gospel in which you already stand. He'd already faithfully taught them. They were already faithfully standing in it. At least some of them. In fact, I remember a pastor talking about how when he listened to a good preacher, it wasn't so much. Now, this was a a gentleman who knew a lot more than I. When I I sit in church on Sunday, I still feel like I learn a lot. He said it wasn't so much that he learned things. It was that he was reminded of the precious and the old and the true So we forget so quickly, don't we? Paul says, I've sought to remind you. So some of you are here tonight to be revived, to be refreshed, to be reminded of the gospel, to rejoice again in the gospel, to rejoice again in the good news. And verse 2 says this, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now some of you are here tonight to hear the gospel clearly for the first time. 
or to hear it again and recognize that your faith is of little difference than the demons. Paul says, unless you believe in vain, others of you tonight believe in vain. You're not here to be revived, refreshed, renewed in the gospel. Your belief is shallow. It's half-hearted and it is really no true belief at all. J.C. Rao says it this way, there's a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have. They think they have enough, a cheap Christianity which offends no one and requires no sacrifice which costs nothing and is worth nothing. I would add this is no Christianity at all. J.C. Rao wrote that at least 40 years ago because that's the last thing he wrote was about 40 years ago. He's long gone. How true those words in that day, how true today. Being saved, Paul says, the word saved appears in every tense in the New Testament. So it says you have been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. So there's a sense in which we are saved now, but we're not fully saved. Why? Because we're still on this side. I can't wait to go home. I don't know about you, but I think about it often. I don't know if it's possible to think about too often, uh, but I think about it often. I'm not fully saved yet. You're not fully saved yet in the sense that we're not fully with God. The work's been done at the cross. Make no mistake. When you believe you're sealed for all of eternity, but Paul says there's a sense in which you're being saved. True believers always hold fast. They continue in the faith. It's their responsibility, but also their guarantee. John 8.31 talks about how true believers remain in the word. And 1 John 2.19 says, John writes this. He says, they went out from us because they were never really of us. So if you're a true believer, the Holy Spirit, Spirit dwells inside of you and you remain. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints or the fact that we can have assurance in our salvation is a wonderful and beautiful doctrine that we don't have time to dive into tonight. But Paul says some have believed in vain. What a tragedy, isn't it? What hard words to read that some have believed in vain. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the warning in Matthew 7. Why don't you go there quickly with me to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 21. This is Jesus speaking in his famous Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember these words. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? It says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What's going on here? Is this some Joe on the street? No, we can tell by Jesus' words, these are people who profess to know Christ. This isn't a professing unbeliever. This is someone who's been there, done that. He makes claims. They make bold claims. They say, we've prophesied in your name, and in your name we've cast out demons. In your name we perform many miracles, and Jesus will sell. He says, I'll say to him plainly, I never knew you. This is people inside of the church walls. These are people who have believed in vain. These are people who have no true faith at all. Their belief is like the demons that James speaks about in James 2.19. 
He says, you say that you know that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I delivered to you of first importance that what I also received. Paul says this is first importance. This is top priority. It's interesting to me, Paul, at the age of 21, would have the equivalency of two PhDs in, in theology. Just a well, well-educated man. If we have a, a seminary student in the Bible, it's Paul. Very well-educated. Very well-studied. Even by the time he's a young man. And he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come pro- proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except for Christ Jesus and him crucified. So Paul knows much. But he says, I declare to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And here he says, this is of first importance. If you don't get this, you don't get anything. You must start here. I declare this of first importance to you. Everything else I say to you is secondary until you get this. Everything else I say to you builds off of this. This is of first importance. What? That Christ died for our sins. That is of first importance. That is priority. He says this, in accordance with the scriptures. It's interesting. First priority, the word crux and crucial that we have in our English language, derived from the Latin term for cross. It's just the center. It is the crux or the crucialness in Christianity. So to say something like the cross is crucial is almost a, a weird paradigm. It's the same. It comes from the same word. Crucial. It is the crux. It is the cross. It is crucial. It is of first importance. Then Paul makes this statement. He says, according to the scriptures, it was foretold. And as we saw last week, the Messianic line was sustained through the Old Testament. And it was told way back in Genesis how it would happen. Let's back up before his dies, before Christ died. And uh, go with me to Luke. You're already in Matthew. Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 4. I want to show you what Jesus does here. It's really something. And in Luke chapter 4, go to verse uh, 17. He's in the synagogue and he stands up to read. And he takes the book of the prophet Isaiah, verse 17, says it was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it is written. No accident, he goes to the place where it's written and he says he reads this. He reads out of Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover sight for the blind, to set those who are oppressed free, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then get this, in verse 21, he says, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ came to fulfill the scriptures. He fulfilled the scriptures. He did it over and over again. Remember, God has no aha moments. He doesn't say, aha, I get it. I'll send my son to earth. It didn't come to him in the blink of an eye, just like this didn't. 
Christ fulfills over 300 Old Testament prophecies in his time on earth. Is more yet to fulfill in his second coming. Again and again, according to the scriptures. And that's what the apostles seek to do in the New Testament. Again and again. In fact, in uh, Acts 2, Peter gives his first sermon. And what does he do? He quotes from Joel 2, Romans 10, 13. Uh, excuse me, Joel 2, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Psalms 132, 11. 2 Samuel 7, 12. Psalms 89, 3. Psalms 16, 10. And Psalms... 1.10.1. He keeps going back again and again. And it says that's what he went to do in the synagogues. He said from the scriptures, from the scriptures, from the scriptures. And he argues with him. And he says, look, way back. This is the one you've been waiting for. Here he is. Don't miss him. He's come. And he's fulfilled. And he lives. And he died. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Which says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. Some of you have heard this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's one of my favorites about this verse. I had a friend who uh, is a missionary in a foreign land, and he was learning to memorize scripture in his language or in the native tongue. And he was working really hard on it, and he chose one verse. He thought, if I'm going to do one verse to memorize, I think it'll be this one. And his buddy that was with him, and uh, they were witnessing to this fellow in the country, and his buddy read off some psalms that he'd memorized in the native language. And then my buddy tried to kind of spit and stutter out Second Corinthians 5.21. And uh, the fellow, the native fellow said, no, that's not right. That's not right. And so he tried it again, and it was kind of broken, and he, he tried it again. And finally he says, let me see it. And my buddy had written it out, and so he showed it to him, and he read it, and and he was still confused. He says, no, that's not right. That's a wrong translation. He says, this says that he, who's the Messiah, came and died, even though he was righteous, and I took on his righteousness. My friend says, that's exactly what it means. See, the problem wasn't the language. The problem was the understanding. The fellow was Muslim and he could never believe that someone would come, that God would come in human flesh and die and take his place. What a beautiful truth. It's been said this way, Christ came and he lived and he died and God treated his son just like he lived my life so he could treat me just like I lived his What a beautiful truth. Christ came and he died and was raised again according to the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says most of these people are alive, but some of them are dead. says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, here's it. He was crucified. He was, in dead. he was indeed dead. He really did die. And he was buried. And God raised him again to life, just like he said he would. Just like he said he would. And then he says this. He made many appearances. 
He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to 500. He appeared to Paul. This was no secret. And then verse 10, Paul says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me didn't prove in vain. It wasn't wasted. He says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, speaking to the apostles, though it was not I. Paul means it's not I who strive, it's not I who labored, but the grace of God that is within me. Verse 11, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So we preached, and you believed. Preached what, Paul? The gospel. That's what Paul preached. That's what he delivered of first importance. It's a cause and effect relationship with the gospel, isn't it? Paul preached it and they believed it. The apostles preached it and they believed it. Paul preached it, they believed it. Peter preached it, they believed it. Now, what it, in all this is the responsibility or the role of you and I? That's the gospel, but how does that come to bear on my life? What does that mean? Paul tells us. He says, I preached and you believed. So how this applies to you depends on you tonight. It depends on where your soul is. Your responsibility is to do one of two things. It's either to preach it or to believe it. If you haven't been born again, your role is to believe it. It's to believe it. And if you have been born again, your role is to continue to believe and then to preach it. In fact, I want you to turn to Acts 2 for a good picture of this. I can't think of a better place to go for an example of this than Acts 2. I just love this, and I know many of you are already familiar with it. I already mentioned it even earlier, but in Acts 2, it's Peter's first sermon. And it's a big one. And apparently it's a good one. God chooses to work through mightily that day. And I want you to start looking with me in verse uh, 37. Verse 37. <clears throat> it says, Now when they had heard the... Ah, go to 36. I changed my mind. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Then what? Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, or they were cut to the quick, some of your translations say. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter, what do we got to do? It's interesting. Look at Peter says to them, verse 38, Peter said to them, with every head bowed and with every eye closed and with no one looking around the room, slip your eyes up and make contact with mine. That's absurd, isn't it? That's not what Peter says at all. Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, Turn from your wicked rebellion and repent of your sins and turn to Christ. In verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, and as many as the Lord... Our God will call to himself. He says it's broad. He says as many as want to come, come. It's for you too. It's for you and your children and for as many are far off and as many as the Lord God will call to himself. Like Spurgeon used to pray, 
Lord, save the elect and elect some more. It's for any. It's for all. And then verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Strong words Peter had. Strong words Jesus had. Strong words Paul had. But the gospel, he says, repent. They come to him and they say, what do I got to do, Peter? I've crucified the Christ. What must I do? He says, repent and be baptized. So why do we see all this silly language today? Bow your head and close your eyes and with no one looking around, slip your hand up in my air. I just don't, I just don't see any of it in the New Testament. Anywhere. And so I get, I get, I get fired up like, Pete, like Paul does sometimes with the gospel because I want people to be saved, but what I see is not the gospel being preached so often. What I see is a plea for you to raise your hand and make eye contact. I've seen this all, I'm not just thinking of here, I'm thinking of many places that I've been, Australia and Turkey and Brazil and... Do you see why that's so foolish? Because we don't see any of that kind of language in the New Testament. And furthermore, what God calls us to is to believe and repent. The trouble with raising your hand or praying a prayer or any of the following is that you're counting on a work. And Paul says, it's not to him who wills or works, but to him who believes. And so what we get is so many trusting in this work that they've done. As though God somehow looks down at the people who raise their hand and says, yes, yes, sister, the angels are rejoicing. Yes, I'll see you on the other side. No, he says, repent and believe. And can that be an expression of repentance and belief? Yes. I believe that God saves people in spite of our silly, silly methods sometimes. But praise him that he's sovereign enough to do that. In John six twenty nine, Jesus it says, Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who they've sent. What do you have to do? You don't have to work. I hope you're familiar with Ephesians two, eight and nine. I hope you're familiar with grace and faith and the fact that we can't take credit for our own salvation. That rather than taking credit, we trust in another. That we cast our cares and our sin upon Christ and God says, I've separated it. I've thrown it behind my back. I've taken it as far as the east is from the west. Why? Not because we've done good things, but because we've believed, because we've repented. People are often saying to me, I want to act more like the New Testament church. I want to go to a church that's like the New Testament church. Here's a good start. Preach the gospel as we see it laid out in the New Testament. Usually what people mean when they say that is, I I want to go to a house church or I want to go to something smaller. Usually what they mean by that is I want to go to some sort of monkish state where I give all my belongings away and live in a cardboard box. You want a good start to the New Testament? Learn the gospel. Love the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. 
Repent and be baptized. There's a baptism here happening February 3rd. Did you know there's no such thing as someone in the New Testament who's a believer and not baptized? That's a good start. We'll talk more about the fruit of things next week, the fruit of the gospel next week. I just wonder, why is there so much language pertaining to the gospel that didn't rise until about 80 years ago? Brothers and sisters, let us return to the scriptures and let us call men and women in loving kindness to repent and turn to a merciful and kind master who will take away all of their sins because of the finished and paid price of Jesus Christ. Acts three seventeen through 19. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Remember what we talked about last week? Andy went through the stands and he talked about all these prophets and men. And he says, now they foretold this. And now Peter says, all the prophets, they said that Christ would suffer and thus he fulfilled it. He said, here's the gospel, here it is, now what? Verse 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. He says, repent and turn. Christ did what the prophet said. Don't you see, this is the Messiah. Believe this and turn. Don't you see Christ's words in the New Testament turned away thousands more than they draw it in. Many of them said, this is a hard saying. It's so much easier to want to work my way, isn't it? It's so much easier to want to wake up and go about my day and say, Lord, look at what I've done. Look at all I've done. Don't I deserve your favor? Christ says, no, humble yourself and turn to me in childlike faith and repentance. Acts twenty twenty one. We read this, repentance towards God and faith in our Christ Jesus. We could just go through these again and again and again. You want to act like the early church? Pray for your pastors. Pray for the body. Pray for the valley. Pray for this world. Pray for each of those with you tonight. There's some of you who don't know Jesus tonight. So repent and turn to Christ. I beg you. Says with many other words, Peter beseeched them, saying, Turn from this wicked generation. Don't go into it, turn away from it, repent. Like Paul, be sensitive to where the people you're at and what they know about the gospel. Paul knew well, didn't he? He knew his audience. And by God's grace, Andy and I love and study our audience. And we pray for you and we want you to turn to Christ in repentance. And if you have, we want you to be encouraged and exhorted and built up and sanctified and discipled. We want you to see that cross life isn't an end, but it's a means to an end. It's to point you to Christ, to point you to worship, to point you even to Sunday mornings with the body. Learn about the gospel. Dive into the gospel. Learn to love the gospel. Memorize verses that pertain to the gospel. Don't play it like a tape over and over in your head. Don't give some systematic, every time thing. Learn about the person you're talking to. 
Love them. Understand what they know, what they don't know, what they need to know. It takes time with some people to love them, to show them, to pray for them. Many different folks, many different backgrounds, many different understandings. Everyone's different. The gospel is the same. But some people know and understand and can deal with different parts of it. But this is what we preach of first importance, Christ and Him crucified. If you fellas could get that video ready. I just wanted to show you a a quick testimony, uh, a concise testimony of a fella. Probably some of you guys know. But this is what the gospel does in someone's life. Uh, Paul says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and new things have come. Jesus says in John 3, no one's going to heaven unless they're born again. The gospel causes men to be born again. God causes men to be born again. And this is just an example of it. So if you want to roll that. This is my story. Fear of man, trust in myself, warrior, idolize sports, and a filthy mouth. This is his story. I'm Chase Young, a senior at Montana State University. Um, I grew up a ranch and farm kid, and I formerly played football here at MSU. At a young age, I'd call myself a Christian, but really I had no personal relationship with the Savior. Um, Jesus found me when I was er early in high school. I uh, had some close friends who became born-again believers, and my own curiosity of what the scriptures had to say um, brought me to himself. I realized my need for a Savior, that I was a sinner, and that God is a just and holy God and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I knew I was guilty, and uh, since then, over time, he's shown me that I can't get to him on my own, under my own merit, but that I need him every day. And uh, I know that I have eternal security in Christ and a place in heaven solely by the fact that um, Christ paid the price for my sins and my faith in his finished work on the cross is um, what gives me that security. Um, I'd like to share with you one of my favorite verses in uh, Jesus addressed the disciples and he said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is his story. of a simple man born in sin, a sinner by birth, by nature, by choice, by practice, who God chose to redeem, to open his eyes to the truth, to cause him to repent and believe. I beg that some of you would do that tonight. And if you have already done that, Paul says you got two things. You believe in it and then you preach it. Those are a a video series called His Story. Um, We'll release one of those a week and we'll show it at seven o'clock sharp. Uh, for Cross Life each week. We're excited about those. Uh, Andy's been thinking through those a long time, really. The script, and it's just a, it's an exciting thing, and it's an exciting way for average people to talk about how a magnificent Savior broke into their life and saved them. We we'll hope you'll be encouraged by them. One a week, uh, 7 o'clock here at Cross Life, and then we'll release, and we'll put it on Facebook on the page. Uh, Chase said, not as the world gives does he give but he gives he gives generously he gives real peace he gives true comfort that's only found in a saving faith in Christ 
not in this worldly, uh, contemporary sort of language that gives men and women false hope, only in a true gospel, only as we see it laid out from the pages of Genesis to the pages of Revelation. And now we've seen it from beginning to end. And I hope that we hope that you'll walk away with a better understanding, with a deeper love, and uh, with a with a sacrificial heart, and for some of you, a born-again spirit. Hope you'll pray with me now. Let's close. <clears throat> Father, this is the first time since we've come together at seven since we prayed together. And we remember that we ought not to rush into prayer with a holy God. But we also remember that Hebrews says that we may enter boldly into the throne room of grace because what's been done. And I just want to take an opportunity to praise you and thank you that you've called me out of darkness into your marvelous light. And that you've taught and are teaching that I've been saved and being saved and will be saved. And Heavenly Father, we ask for the body that they'd be greatly built up and encouraged and exhorted to preach this gospel that we see in the pages of your scripture, to preach it accurately, to love it well, and to worship you in the process. Tonight, would you be pleased with the worship through prayer, through song, through teaching, and after we're done through fellowship and pizza and all those things. Thank you so much for your patience with me, Lord. Thank you that, you that you've saved me. Pray you'd save others tonight and sanctify those who are saved. We ask this only in the precious name of your Son and because of his blood. Amen. I want to leave you with a verse I've been thinking about for quite some time. It's in John 14. No, it's not. Where's the fruit in the vine? 15. One more chapter. Verse 9. John 15, verse 9. Go to (laughs) 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Um, uh, that's, I think, I really believe that's one of the most profound statements about Christ's love in the entire New Testament because he likens his love for us to the love that the Father has for him. And so that's the kind of love that the Father showed us in sending His Son. And that's the kind of love that Christ has for us. 1 John 4, 1, 4, 9, and 10, or 1, 9, and 10 says this, This is love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice or as a propitiation for our sins, one to stand in His place. And so I hope you got that out of tonight. If you didn't, you missed it. Repent and turn to Christ. His love for you is great. And so I take some time to meditate on that, to think on these things, and now to love one another and to fellowship with one another. 
uh, Nico said he got 25 pizzas tonight. <laughs> so I'll be impressed if you guys can get through them. Uh, we, we're serious about those community groups, and uh, Andy explained why, because we care about you. And next week in the community groups, you're going to talk about what we talked about tonight, and you're going to go deeper, and you're going to be able to ask questions and think about these things. And so we'd encourage you to get in a men's one or in a ladies' one and uh, stick around and get to know some people. We sure love you guys, and we're looking forward to seeing you next week. You're dismissed.